The following content is for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as legal or tax advice, nor as a recommendation related to your specific situation. All concepts presented should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. Advisory services are offered through Veracity Capital LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Capital Conversations presented by Veracity Capital, a podcast talking money and speaking truth. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on a very special edition of the Capital Conversations podcast. My name is Charles Crowley. I'm a wealth advisor here at Veracity Capital. And today I'm joined by Mike Colopy uh, and a very special guest, Lee Liscombe, uh, who is going to help us walk through a conversation today about oil and gas, energy prices, and what we're seeing going on in the markets. So with that, first, let me introduce Lee Liscombe. He is a portfolio manager, longtime advisor, several decades in the industry. He's seen it all. He's managed money through it all. So Lee, it's a pleasure to have your experience on this call today. First, we want to kick it off and talk about oil and gas. Everyone's seeing prices rise at the pumps. We obviously have seen inflation for months uh, leading up to this event, but now with Russia and Ukraine on the forefront, we're seeing gas prices and oil prices accelerate. So to start things off, can you give us a market update? Well, the definition of a bear market is a 20% decline, and the NASDAQ has declined that much. Uh, And so the question now is how long will it last? If you go back historically, most bear markets lasted 12 months or longer. And so the market for the NASDAQ peaked in the fourth quarter of last year. Uh, And so it could be uh, sometime uh, before this ends. Now, you have a lot of volatility in the market decline. And and sometimes you have very sharp increases in market prices. Uh, But that's just a, a matter of covering shorts and other things internal to the market. Now, when we're thinking about the markets, we've seen a large divergence where the energy sector is doing very well, all their sectors, well, for the most part, not doing very well. Can you tie in the oil markets, how they're performing and how that might relate to the broader markets? I I think it's a move from high price earnings ratio technology stocks uh, that have, uh, uh, some of them don't even have earnings yet, to more defensive stocks that pay dividends and have lower prices to their earnings. And so it's a more defensive market, which I think will continue through this decline. Uh, now, oil, of course, I would put in this category of commodities, which includes gold and silver, oil, gas, and uh, some other agricultural commodities like wheat, soybeans, and so forth. And commodities have been doing very well uh, for at least the last four months. So, Lee, when I when I think about this most recent spike in energy prices specifically, I'm, I'm looking at some data put out by J.P. Morgan where it's showing from March 4th of last year to March 4th of this year, you're looking at crude being up uh, about 90%. You're looking at natural gas prices being up about 80%, and then gasoline at the pump being up about 40%. So how would you classify or really anticipate this spike? 
most recent spike in energy uh, potentially stifling consumer spending here forward? Well, it's, of course, a combination of factors from shutting down pipelines, including the one from Canada, to not allowing new drilling on federal lands, to not opening up Alaska to increase production. And all of those dropped the peak production that we were at, let alone replacing productions. Oil wells, of course, have a, a short lifetime and, and uh Many of the horizontal drilling wells that produce gas have shorter lives than oil wells. So uh, once production falls off, and if prices are low, there's no incentive to do exploration and stimulation of existing wells to produce more. And so uh, production over time just gradually falls off. Uh, It's a combination of not allowing pipelines, and I think they actually shut down some working pipelines, in addition to not doing exploration and the natural uh, depletion that happens to existing wells. You know, there's a big debate. I guess it's a little bit political these days, but there's a big debate out there about the U.S. uh, potentially increasing the exports of oil from from our country. Do you anticipate that playing into this scenario, say, over the next six to eight months? Well, of course, we're uh, shipping liquefied natural gas now. Uh, A year ago, or 18 months ago, we were actually uh, exporting gas because we were energy independent. That's not true now because of the factors that I just described. Uh, What's interesting to me is is the discussion of should they shut off Russian oil and gas, and they're talking about replacing it with uh, oil and gas from Iraq or from Venezuela. They're not talking about opening the pipeline and getting more from Canada or allowing uh, more uh, exploration and production from Alaska and and other oil wells, which is, to me, uh, somewhat Mm head-scratching. Do you want oil from Russia, Iraq, and Venezuela, or do you want it from Canada and internal sources in the United States? I've studied oil and gas and climate change for a long time. Uh, the issue uh, always is, can you raise renewable sources to replace existing sources in, in a manner that is efficient uh, and, and fast? And I think we found that you can't do that. You have existing in-place pipelines, uh, use in, in vehicles and trucks, and you just can't uh, switch through a switch and, and convert to a solar and windmills. Now, some states have tried that. Texas was one, which very interestingly had a uh, cold spell and freeze, and the windmills froze, and they didn't have any backup like they used to have with oil and gas, and they had a major problem. Many of the backup situations not only in the United States, but in France and Germany, they closed down in Japan. They closed down. Japan went back and opened some nuclear plants, but they, clo- they closed, Germany particularly, closed nuclear plants and then coal plants that were backup plants. And so they don't have that infrastructure anymore. So I'll shift gears a little bit because I think the second aspect of this that we've we've gotten a lot of questions on and we've heard a lot of debate on in the media is the aspect of inflation and certainly how energy and food prices have contributed to that. 
How do you believe that going forward, at least in the near term, might impact you know your every everyday average household consumer spending and 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 really kind of the impact economically of inflation where it's at right now? Well, of course, uh, fuels are a I don't know the exact percentage, uh, but important, and then rents uh, are important, uh, and so uh, food. Uh, uses a lot of oil and gas and fertilizer uses natural gas to make fertilizer. And so there there is a chain reaction when you when you reduce the production of oil and gas in all the products that it goes into, plastics, chemicals, fertilizer, and so forth. And so that has brought uh, increases in price at the primary level. And then of course there's been a, a Cost pass through by a variety of companies, uh, and so the ability to uh, get goods on a timely basis and all the ships offshore and so forth is another factor. So it's not simple to say that it's oil and gas pricing. And, and I've been through now. I lived in Oklahoma for ten years, from eighty-two to ninety-two. I've been through a lot of oil cycles. Mm-hmm. And what typically happens is oil companies are blamed for price gouging. And then they do these ex- extensive studies on how much it w- was price gouging. Uh, and they, every study they've done historically now, that is not the problem. The problem is regulations uh, and other things that do not permit the growing production of, of these items. So to, to, I guess, wrap up this conversation a little bit, I'm going to toss a question out to both of you, uh, and it really surrounds the concept of not only inflation and energy prices, but the expectation for the Fed to continue along the path of raising rates here forward. And a lot of that debate, as it has uh, been heard in the last week or so, is whether or not the Fed is going to continue raising rates at the anticipated pace that they were going to, given the fact that we've seen such a high inflation rate as of late. Obviously, the Russia-Ukraine situation kicked off, and that obviously energy prices kind of goes into that inflation conversation. How do you think the Fed's decision here in March, which is something everybody in our industry is going to be watching, how do you think that that's going to impact things going forward? What do you guys anticipate happening with that with that decision there? Well, Chair- Chairman Powell has ruled out 50 basis points and said they're going to increase 25 basis points. Uh, the question is, going out, if inflation remains at this level or increases, how much can they increase interest rates? Given the amount of government debt, they can't increase them like they had in previous economic cycles because it would take too much of the GDP of our country and they'd spend all their money on interest. And therefore, the uh, Fed is, I believe, incapable of increasing interest rates very much. They can't do what Volcker did and go to double-digit interest rates. Uh, we don't have a budget, and, and because of the amount of debt outstanding, you can't continue to increase debt. That would only increase inflation. And so we're, we're caught in a market cycle uh, that has tremendous debt. And as interest rates increase, how much can they increase? And so I think inflation calls for increases, but I think the amount that they can be increased, not only in the United States, but worldwide, is limited. 
And I'll add some to that. So the CME group has a pretty good predictor, at least, of factoring in what the markets are uh, thinking interest rates will do, what the market's pricing in for interest rates over the next year um, I'm looking at right now. So on December 14th, 2022, so we're basically, you know, we're looking out at the end of the year. What does the market think interest rates will do from a, from a target Fed funds perspective? There's a 33% chance priced in that the Fed funds rate is between 150 and 175. 22% chance that it's between 175 and 200. So, so really, when I'm looking at this distribution curve breakdown, it, it's really looking like there's a high probability that Fed funds rates will be between 125 and 200. So, so that, that's the range. We're, we're thinking at least five hikes and potentially, you know, up, up to eight. That's, that's what the markets are looking at for the end of 2022 right now. Are we saying that we think that that gradual, more gradual tightening of monetary policy is going to be helpful for the stabilization of kind of some of this volatility, or do we think it might kind of play into it a little bit? I think in the short term, it plays into volatility. I don't think necessarily, and when we look back historically at markets, the raising of interest rates isn't necessarily the catalyst for uh, a major bear market or recession. It's it, it, it's really when the Fed's not raising rates, that's the sign, you know, well, we all see clearly there's a slowdown happening now and the Fed needs to stop raising rates. Tightening's already been done, right? And, and that's almost more worrisome, in my opinion. Two things. Uh, the first is the inverted yield curve. If you increase the Fed funds rate enough, uh, and of course, rates have come down with the decline in stock prices as people have bought debt as a hedge. So at some point, uh, we can have an inverted yield curve, and we may have a recession anyway because of the inflation that we're having and and the inability to deal with it on a short-term basis. Other uh, aspect, uh, I, I think, is one of, in today's world, the United States is more self-sufficient than other countries. We were energy independent. We could be, again, if regulations were loosened. We raise and export food, and that's not true of many countries. And so the increase in prices of oil and gas of countries that have to import everything is really going to have an impact on their economies. The the other point I'd raise is some people are saying because Oil has increased so much, it's over, and it's too late to buy energy companies. It's been my experience that many of these uh, trends in energy last seven to ten years. And the way you, you, you monitor how close are we to reaching a peak price is the amount of drilling rigs that are out there uh, looking for oil and uh, enhancing the existing uh, production of, of wells. And the number of drilling rigs, rigs we have in, in the United States working are is uh, 300. Uh, and two years ago, we had 600. And back when I lived in Oklahoma, it was over 1,000. And so we're nowhere near having companies saying, wow, this price is really great. We ought to be out there exploring and increasing production. 
And so until they do that, uh, prices are going to stay high. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate the conversation. This was very helpful, and hopefully for our listeners out there, this gave you a few tidbits uh, to take away and to help you understand kind of what we're seeing in the markets and certainly in, in the in the world of energy and oil and gas. Do a couple things for us as we conclude today's show. Head out to social media. Follow our team. Uh, we're on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So head out, connect with us. Uh, go to our website. Follow some of the great content that we are putting out. Certainly subscribe to the Capital Conversations podcast and leave us a, leave us a comment or two on things that you want our team to explore here in the future. As always, we appreciate you listening to the Capital Conversations podcast. 